Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 10 of Dog Lab. This is Brian Burton. Today, we have Dr. Lucia Lazarowski to discuss the future of detection dogs and how we can use that knowledge to improve the selection and development of our own pet dogs. In this episode, we discuss the history of detection dogs, the difference between passive and active indication, behavioral evaluation and selection, developing and socializing puppies, cognition abilities in detection dogs, and olfactory learning and memory. We also spend a good amount of time discussing resiliency in working dogs and how that can help us raise more resilient pets. Dr. Lazarowski received her bachelor's and master's degrees from the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, where she studied psychology with a concentration in animal cognition and behavior. For her master's thesis, she examined the effects of multiple exemplar training on olfactory concept learning in rats. After completing her master's, she worked at North Carolina State University's College of Veterinary Medicine as a research associate where she studied behavior and olfaction in military working dogs for three years. She then completed a PhD in Cognitive and Behavioral Sciences at Auburn University in August 2018. For her dissertation, she studied cognitive development and early predictors of success in detection dogs. Currently, she is a postdoctoral fellow at the Canine Performance Sciences Program of Auburn University's College of Veterinary Medicine. Remember to follow us on Twitter at doglab underscore podcast and email us any questions or topic ideas to doglab at instinctdogtraining.com. So here is Dr. Lucia Lazarowski. Dr. Lucia Lazarowski, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. There's a lot to get through here um, with all the great work you've been doing, but let's start here. What is a detection dog? I think most people have an idea of what that is, but just to make sure we're all using the same terms and, and starting from the same place. And what is the the vision and goals of the canine performance sciences at Auburn University? So a detection dog is a dog that is trained to detect and alert to a target odor, which can be anything from explosives and drugs or other contraband to biological targets like diseases and endangered or invasive wildlife. So um, really anything that has an odor that the dog can be trained to detect. And so the mission of our program is to advance canine detection technology through research in a number of areas, including olfaction, behavior and cognition, uh, neuroscience and genetics. And before we get into the research, can you help our audience understand the history of detection dogs? So how were they used? What went well? And in what ways was the breeding and training of detection dogs limited? So dogs have been used for thousands of years as hunting partners um, originally, but have been used more formally as detection dogs probably since around World War II, most commonly for detecting explosives and narcotics and tracking people. And for a long time, the, the reliability of detection dogs and their alerts as admissible evidence was sort of questioned. But thanks to several de- decades of research, we now have a lot of really great scientific evidence that dogs can be extremely reliable and even more accurate than instrumental analytical technology. As far as limitations, and I think that this also applies to the dog training profession in general, but especially for detection dog training, um, there's been a long history of training rooted in kind of tradition and intuition and not so much scientific evidence-based practices. But that's changing a lot, especially recently where there's 
not only been an explosion of research on how dogs learn and think, which is really advancing our understanding of how to better train dogs, but we're also seeing a lot of trainers and handlers take a deeper interest in really learning the science of dog training. And of course, there's an art to training as well, but understanding the principles of conditioning and how dogs learn and dog behavior to make training more efficient and all around better for the dog and handler. Yeah. And the accuracy thing is is interesting in the in the admissible evidence because I think there has been some suspicion sometimes that there can be handler interference or especially when we're getting into active versus passive indication. I think most people probably have experienced that you can make your dog sit just by like shuffling your feet a certain way or moving into their space a little bit. So I was kind of curious, like what what things have we learned about active versus passive indication? And maybe if you maybe you can start just by defining those two things for everyone. And are there any sort of like recent developments in that? Sure. So um, in general, a a passive alert is, we'll start with an, an active alert. An active alert would be where the dog typically um, barks or does some kind of uh, active behavior that's easily seen or observed. A passive alert is still it's still a behavior. It's still an operant response where typically the dog sits down um, and lies down. Active alerts sometimes can also be the dog actually scratching at the location. So active alerts are typically more common with um, like a search and rescue dog, when they find a victim, they'll start barking to make sure the handler can hear them or scratching at whatever object is blocking where the person is. Sometimes drug dogs will will be put on an active alert. Passive alerts are more common for explosive dogs because, of course, we don't want them to <laughs> right. do anything to set off the, the explosive. Um, so it's really just a, a difference of what the dog is being, uh, being used for. But there's still always some kind of trained operant response that makes it so that the handler can clearly see that the dog is saying something's here. And that makes it, that helps with the argument of it's not just the handler. That's where you get into trouble with if it's just that the dog does something and the handler is like, oh, I just, I saw the dog do this. And I, you know, that means he's alerting. If it's not a response, it's been defined ahead of time. Then you can get into, well, is the handler just saying that because they're trying to get a probable cause? Um, so it helps to have some kind of defined operant response. It's defined operationally. Yeah. So like an example of that would be, I think a common one is drugs, for example. So if a police officer pulls someone over and, you know, the dog sniffs the car, uh, we want to make sure that the dog is actually indicating based on what they are detecting and not just responding to the the handler's cues, essentially, which can be very, very subtle. And I think if you're a, any decent dog handler would probably know ha- how to do that. Are there are there ways where they they like are, are they are they moving more like active in, in, indication now or is passive indication besides for the explosive dogs? But for like, let, let's say the, the drug detection dogs, is, is there like a movement to sort of like have them do more active uh, indication or are there other things that are that we're looking for to make sure that that's not happening. Yeah, I think, I, I don't know if really there's um, movement towards one specific alert versus another in general, because again, it kind of depends more on that dog's, their role. But I think that there, there definitely is a movement towards more documentation and definition. If, um, if a dog does alert and that's used as probable cause, then courts can audit training records. And if it's documented in the training records that that is what the dog's alert is, 
then that's going to be a lot better than if that's if that's not documented in the training records. And there is there's been some old and also pretty recent research showing that that yeah, dogs are definitely very susceptible to unintentional or intentional handler cueing or interference where I think there is a movement there to better educate handlers about how important it is to minimize as much cueing as possible to train dogs either single blind or better yet double blind where nobody in the room is aware because even if the handler is blind if the experimenter or the supervisor knows they could be cueing not only the dog but also Mm -hmm. the handler and so I think that there is definitely a, a push there to better educate trainers and handlers about the importance of that and how to minimize that. Especially it's often unintentional. They're not being it on purpose. So educating right. people about how even when you think that you are controlling for this, it still can be happening and how to remove that. Yeah, totally. And I, I, I've done with my previous dog, Sammy, I, he, 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 we actually had him trained on cocaine scent. We had like the pseudo uh, cocaine scent from, um, I forget the company that makes it, but yeah, it was there. Like when I, you, you could very like, definitely like when you wanted him to find it, like if I watch myself on videotape, I could see my, myself doing that. And that's probably where uh, video evidence for that stuff would probably be helpful too. But um, cool. Well, that's, yeah, so that's great. So that, that sort of helps us understand what, what detection dogs are, which again, what most people, most people understand uh, what, what they are, but I think the the differences between active and passive indication is a uh, really important point. So your research focuses on four main areas. So we have behavioral selection and evaluation, developing and socializing puppies, which sounds really fun, but I know from experience can also be very challenging. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cognition and detection dogs, which I find really interesting. We'll talk about that in a second. And olfactory learning and memory. So let's start with the first two. So developing and socializing puppies and the behavioral selection and evaluation. So what are you learning about developing resilient dogs and selecting dogs appropriate for detection roles? And are there any concepts that can be applied to the breeding and selection of pet dogs? So what can we, those of us in the pet dog world, what can we learn from from this research? Because there has to be overlap. Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, that point about resilience is super important. So we are seeing that resilience is probably the number one factor for not just detection dogs, but for working dogs of any type um, to be able to to work efficiently and effectively in environments, in public areas, Uh, not so much for a dog that maybe has a role where it's always working at home with its owner or in a lab setting, but for any working dog that's going to be out in the world experiencing variable environments, resilience is is number one. And what we're finding is that the critical key to developing resilience is early development and socialization. And that that period of development during early puppyhood can really set the dog up for success or can lead to problems that pop up later down the line. And a critical concept that this revolves around is the concept of early life stress. So we know that stress Too much stress is a bad thing. It can have negative effects on development and the development of fear responses. So if dogs are not adequately socialized or they have some kind of traumatic experience, this can have adverse effects. But what's interesting that we're starting to see is that the other end of the spectrum, so not enough stress, is also not beneficial. It's kind of this bell-shaped curve where too much stress early in life can have really bad effects. That middle ground actually can be beneficial and then not enough stress also um, can lead to some problems. So it's kind of this idea of stress inoculation where 
doses, small doses of mild to moderate stress um, can be really beneficial. It actually induces neurochemical changes in the brain. It instills an adaptive response that teaches the organism how to cope with and how to adapt to potential stressors that builds resilience and develops this adaptive stress response that will be carried through later into adulthood. And so without any exposure to stress, some might think that, you know, if you just protect the dog in a bubble, that then it's not going to be any traumatic experience and no risk of bad things happening. But if the dog never experiences anything stressful, anything challenging, it's going to be unprepared for the realities of challenges of the real world, especially working dogs that are going to be exposed to crowds of people and loud noises and all kinds of unpredictable things. So it's very important to expose puppies to all kinds of multi-sensory stimulation, lots of handling, exposure to different kinds of people, small challenges and obstacles, all during this really critical period of development when the brain is rapidly growing, the puppy is highly receptive to learning about different experiences and new things. It's not yet entered into that fear stage where it's avoidant of novelty. So it's a really good period to um, introduce things that if you introduce them later on, the puppy might be more avoidant. Doing all this during this window is going to greatly maximize the puppy's confidence and resilience later in life. So this is absolutely applicable to pets um, and other working dogs too. This is not just detection dogs. And a lot of this research with the early life stress and stress inoculation actually comes from research that's been done in other animals like rodents and primates. Um, specifically with dogs, it's been looked at in guide dogs and how um, different amounts and different kind of interactions um, will uh, kind of predict the dog's future success as a guide dog. So for the general public, um, in terms of pets, if you are getting a dog from a breeder or from some source where um, their background is, is known, ask questions, ask the breeder, you know, do you do socialization? What kind of environment is the puppy, is the litter reared in? Are they reared in a kennel with their mom? Are they separated? You know, at what age does that separation happen? Um, were they raised in the backyard? Did they meet different people? You know, do you do any kind of socialization protocol? So really understanding what kind of early experience um, the puppy had. And that's another reason why not to get puppies from places like puppy mills, where we're seeing that dogs that come from these types of facilities where they're just trying to maximize the output of production and not really spending any time socializing with puppies and they're raised in really barren environments tend to have a lot of behavior problems later on. Of course, if you're rescuing a dog and you don't know its background, that's okay. I often, I kind of personally just think that rescues are very resilient because they probably were raised on the streets and had a tough life and, you know, learned to adapt to that. Um, but so it's okay if you don't know the puppy's background or if maybe, you know, wasn't properly socialized, but understanding that if behavior problems arise, it doesn't mean that you did anything wrong or that anyone did anything wrong or that it's the dog's fault. It might just be a product of its environment and understanding that can help manage behavior issues um, and better manage your expectations. And for most people, if you, if you're not planning on, you know, competing with your dog or training your dog for a working role, it's not going to be faced with these environments where we need this really kind of bomb-proof type of dog. So most pet dogs that didn't have a lot of this socialization that we do, they do just fine in the environments that 
that we are exposing them to. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And actually, I think the hair stood up on the back of my neck at one point, just because this is such an important uh, concept in terms of res- uh, resiliency. And this is probably a product of me training dogs in New York City, where dogs have to deal with you know, traffic and lots of uh, social pressure and environmental pressure and noise and lots of different, like people look different and people wear different things uh, and all of those things. So that's, it's super important. And there's a few things I wanted, I wanted to, to touch on here. So I think most people are starting to understand the importance of socialization, but I want to reiterate for people like that belt, sort of like that bell curve that, that you talked about where we have too much stress and too little stress. So when, when we look in the middle where sort of that optimum amount, like what types of things for dogs is appropriate? I know, for example, you mentioned rodents. So I know with uh, like research mice or rats, they would do things like handling the the rats or the mice, like just, just picking them up and handling them is just like a little bit of stress, but in the long run, they were actually more resilient. So obviously we can do handling stuff with dogs. You mentioned like socialization, but are, are there things where that people aren't really thinking about that might be, uh, you know, sort of high impact for these dogs, like to help them out? Yeah. So I think actually the term socialization, which I've been using is a little misleading because that mm-hmm. refers to specifically social relationships and exposure to people and other animals. Uh, but it's only one small part of it. So what we do really is expose puppies um, to different activities that stimulate different the different senses. So like you mentioned, handling is a big part of it. So just handling the dog, not like a delicate little baby, but handling it, obviously not, not rough, but kind of putting it in positions that it might not be used to, handling by different people, you know, touching the puppy with different textures. So doing some handling wearing rubber gloves or doing some handling where you have different materials that you're touching the puppy with or stroking the dog with um, like a hairbrush or a toothbrush or just so that it gets different tactile input. Visual simula- stimulation. So we have a, a television monitor in the nursery that is constantly playing different videos. And sometimes it's things that are animated. Sometimes it's real world um, footage. That's a really good way to issue with socializing is that you're also in that vulnerability period where puppies aren't vaccinated. So you can't really take the dog out and get all this exposure without you know, risking health issues. So we can do that by sort of simulating that exposure. So playing a video of somebody walking through New York City, so the puppy gets exposed to traffic and that scenery without actually being there. And there's been studies that have shown that even just exposure to a video of that um, is better than nothing. It might not be the same as the real thing, but it gets pretty close to it. Playing different sounds, so different types of music can have different um, stimulating or soothing effects, but even just accustoming dogs to different noises like traffic, vacuum cleaners, and horns, really just kind of targeting all of the different senses so that we are stimulating as much as possible. And the puppy then is experiencing things that it might encounter later on. It's already had that experience. Yeah. And I think it's also, and I think uh, the trend within the pet world, I think people are starting to understand about that socialization period between eight and 16 weeks. So we know that again, like you said, we don't, they're, they're, they're more uh, open to like novelty at that sort of younger age, but there's two points I want to, to, to to ask about so one is when they're with the breeder or at the rescue or the shelter if if, if the, the puppies are being raised there how young should the the breeder or the rescue actually start 
to do these exercises? Is it like pretty much day one? Is it like generally week three or four? Are they too young at certain points? So like what? Because I think it, it's an important concept for people to understand because when they talk to breeders and those types of things, when they ask questions, you know, I, I think just a little bit of knowledge there will probably be helpful for them. Yeah. So as, as young as possible, I think is best. We don't start on day one. We start around day three, just because, you know, the birth event itself is probably <laughs> enough of a stressor. And so we give the puppies a couple of days to just adjust to to the world and, and to <laughs> life. And um, so we do start toward the end of that first week. The difficult thing is that in terms of the timing of when is best to do different things, there's a lot of variability between breeds, between species, and even mm. um, within within breeds. So generally, somewhere around starting around four weeks to roughly eight weeks is that really prime window where puppies are highly receptive to learning and that fear of novelty hasn't really kicked in yet. Um, but again, that's highly dependent on breeds. So some breeds, that window, so that, that kind of critical period starts to come to a close as puppies start to become avoidant and fearful of novel things. That tends to correlate with when the mother starts leaving the nest, um, mm-hmm. or at least evolutionarily when that would happen, because up until that point, they're protected by the mother. There's really no worries. They're still in the nest, so they don't really need that kind of protective mechanism when she starts wandering away from them and they're left alone longer, that's when that kind of self-defense you know, type of mechanism kicks in when they start to become wary of other things. And like I said, within breeds, some breeds will start showing that much earlier and some much later. So you kind of just have to pay attention to when you see your puppy start showing this fear of novelty and this avoidance, you want to start kind of scaling back. So it's important to continue socialization, but it's also important to when puppies are in that fear period not to overdo it because now you're kind of on the opposite side where things that happen that are too intense during that time are going to have a much more impactful effect than earlier. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so if, yeah, if anyone listening has questions on if they're going too fast or going too slow, that that's definitely when you want to reach out to a professional for sure. I think the other thing too, you, you mentioned the the whole, the, uh, the conflict between keeping them within a isolation bubble so they don't get diseases and the social, that socialization window or, or that period of time where we need to socialize or, uh, have them interact with different, you know, uh, noises and sounds uh, and those types of things. So this is something where, you know, even within our company, we have two veterinary behaviorists and there seems to be a push now on sort of finding a happy balance to that trade-off because keeping them completely in the house and, you know, until they're 16 weeks of age, especially in places where there's a little bit more pressure, you know, we want to get them out. And then, but at the same time, you don't want to be going to like dog parks or pet stores or those types of things. So I think, and you you can tell me if you disagree and that's okay, but generally our guidelines are you want them to have their first round of vaccinations and you want to make sure they stay current. You want to stay out of places where there are unknown dogs. But I believe there's like research even, uh, I believe it was from Australia, and I'll, I'll, I'll put it in the episode notes that, for example, dogs who attended puppy class were no more likely to get parvo or distemper. You know, in New York City, for example, we do more of, especially for smaller dogs, you could actually just pick them up and go for a walk. So you can do like short two or three minute walks like around the block. They can interact with people. And then even sometimes we'll actually do, depending on the dog and how much we need to do it, we might do short walks, like a half a block, wipe off their paws when they come back in. So I wanted to, because I know this is a little bit of a controversial area. So I, I definitely fall more on the find a happy balance, but don't be 
don't be silly and don't be taking your dog to, to high risk areas. But I think it's, I think it's really important for the development and the, the health, the, the, basically the mental health of the dog to, to get some of that exposure during that period. Like, so how do you guys strike that balance or, or, or do you guys have like a pretty strict protocol about keeping them isolated until they have all their shots? Yeah. So I think it's definitely sort of a a personal just weighing of, you know, your personal risks and, and benefits. So like you said, there's a lot that you can still do while still avoiding, you know, you don't want to go to dog parks or areas where, you know, lots of dogs are, but you can take the dog for a ride in your car and it can still see a lot of things and experience being in the car without having its feet on the ground. You can, you know, we have little backpacks, little puppy couches where we can walk around and the puppies just, they're, they're up. They're not, you know, as long as their feet aren't on the ground where other dogs of a known source have been, you're probably going to be okay. Um, Generally we, so it probably applies to others that, you know, have breeding programs or have multiple different litters. We don't want to put the puppies at risk of something that could spread across the population. So in general, we keep the puppies in the nursery until they have at least their first round of shots. But we do have areas that we've designated that we know that we're the only ones that go there. And so they can mingle with other litters of the same age or go places that we know no other dogs have been. So yeah, I think it it just depends on, again, you know, weighing the risks and benefits of of what the potential risks could be to you and, and how much um, benefit you can get out of it. Perfect. Yeah. So I think, and I think you're right that you kind of have to make that call yourself because there's no, there's probably no right or wrong answer, but if you talk to your vet or you talk to someone and you feel uncomfortable, definitely get a second opinion or a third opinion, because you might be able to find someone who kind of supports you and, and helps you do that in a way that you're most comfortable with and is most appropriate for your, your dog. And the, the, the one other point I had here was, I think you also mentioned to or you, know, you did mention the the importance of, again, that period where they're more open to novelty and those types of things. So I think just one of the things I wanted to add there is there are, you can have dogs who are quite nervous of certain things, you know, at eight weeks or nine weeks that will take them minutes to overcome or, or maybe just a couple of interactions. And if you wait until six months, it might be months or you might not ever be able to get to that same place. So I think I just want to, I, I just mostly want to throw that out there for people that like just even that period between eight weeks and, and 13 or 14 weeks, the earlier you can start doing it responsibly. And again, ex- socialization and resilient, like exposure and socialization aren't the same thing. So dropping them, you know, in the middle of sirens and those types of things, probably not, not a great idea, but the earlier you can start, the better, at least in my experience, I just want to, to, to pick your brain on that as well. Yeah, and uh, an important point to make too is that this all kind of builds as the puppies get older. So we sort of tailor their exposure and socialization to their development where we start out with gradual, you know, low, softer sounds and less intense kind of stimulation and, and sort of increase that as the puppies are growing. So it kind of mirrors their, their physical and their behavioral um, development. So it's sort of this idea of habituation to novelty that we start during that period where they're highly receptive. We're kind of just trying to habituate them to the concept of novelty or of newness. And so every day there is a new object they can interact with or we change the orientation Mm. of the objects or the furniture or our puppy developers are wearing different things. And so that's kind of that the concept we're not just because, yes, you can even at any point in life, you can introduce a dog to a certain object or person and use counter conditioning and get them used to it. But there's always going to be something that they have an experience that could be an issue. So if we can, during that early period, introduce them to 
novelty is okay, that's going to generalize to you later in life to where, yes, they're probably going to encounter something that's new and we didn't, you know, we weren't able to expose them to that particular thing, but they've learned that new things aren't scary. Yep, exactly. And from a practical standpoint, like things for, for people listening, like really easy stuff, like when you come in with your grocery bags, like let them sniff the bags. Obviously, don't let them get into it and eat stuff that's going to be bad for them. But like dogs can find bags are weird. Or if you use your umbrella one day, like put the umbrella on the ground, you know, just things that are just sort of out of things that you don't even think are different, like just even just having them out and around. Obviously, don't open the umbrella at at the puppy. That's probably not going to go over very well. But there's lots of different things. Yeah, that you can get started with right away. So I think that's, um, yeah, that, that that's a really good point. But one of the things that I struggle with is Sometimes I feel like in the dog training world, I feel like we've gone a little too far on the on, uh, on almost eliminating stress sometimes. And so I actually think it's a problem. And I think that it's finding that sort of that 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 happy medium. So I kind of wanted to get your thought on because obviously we want dogs to be able to make choices. And the more the more we can give them autonomy and they should be a willing participant and it should be fun. But at the same time, they live in the real world where they have to go to the vet and you can't always wait until your your cooperative care behaviors are all there or they might have to go to a groomer or they might you know you might have to take a tick off them so those types of things so like i i just wonder sort of what what your thoughts are on there like do, do you feel like that this is an area that needs more attention so that's actually a really interesting point that we have been kind of toying with a lot lately is at least in the working dog industry the Standards that are expected of the dogs are continuing to increase to the point where the dogs, like I said earlier, they have to be bomb proof. They can't show any sign of fear or stress. They can't flinch. The evaluation tests that they're putting dogs through are just crazy. And so that's what we are. That's the you know the target we're aiming for is preparing dogs for this just complete lack of any kind of stress or fear. But that does kind of bring up the question of is that, is that a good thing? So is it a good thing for a dog to not show any fear of anything and and basically not have any self-preservation behavior? I joke that we're kind of breeding and selecting for the Darwin Award dogs where the dog, if, you know, if you ask it to, it'll walk off a cliff or it'll walk up to a bear because we're breeding out and training out any kind of, you know, avoidance of things that are dangerous. So maybe yes, for the dog to be able to be selected to be a, a working dog. That's what that's what they need. But that dog probably isn't going to survive, you know, in the real world. If we were to just throw the dog out into the wild, now it doesn't have that self-preservation behavior. So it's, it's an important kind of controversial issue of what are we what are we doing? What are the consequences of what we're selecting for by doing this? Yeah, and and I think it's I think we're probably seeing some trends in the parenting world as well. Because I think, you know, you're starting to look at the, you know, the importance of unstructured play coming back, which unstructured play is just, you know, kids starting to learn how to figure out stuff for themselves and things aren't constantly supervised. And and really, it's like introducing some of that little stress or making sure that we're not doing all of their homework for them, like that they're actually going through stuff. And it's like that concept of failing successfully. So learning how to, uh, so I, I, I like that concept, but I think we're seeing that in the in, in the parenting world too. So I, I, it's just, yeah, it's, it's really a fascinating topic area. So I appreciate your, your, uh, your, your thoughts on that because yeah, there's a lot of different opinions. That's actually um, how we look at it is not so much that the dog can't react at all to a sound blast or something that jumped out in front of it, 
but how the dog, you know, how severe their reaction was, and then more importantly, how they recovered from it. So it's okay if the dog flinches, you probably don't want the dog that didn't even notice it, but how long does it take the dog to recover from the startle? Do they take it upon themselves to then go investigate? Do they need a really long time and a lot of support? Um, I think that's what's more important than just this complete lack of any kind of stress response. Mm-hmm. And and do you have concerns over, because then there's the genetic portion of this, right? So, and before I get into this, I mean, all of my, I, I support both rescues and, and uh, responsible breeding. My personal choice is that I've done uh, rescue dogs, so all, all four of my dogs and all six dogs that I've owned have all been rescue dogs. But do you have concerns with this move towards rescue dogs, especially like the spaying and neutering and those types of things? Are we like one of the things I'm concerned about is how often are we actually selecting now nowadays for for behavior for almost like that resiliency or being able to cope with the environment? Like sometimes I worry that one of my dogs got neutered at I think it was 15 weeks, which, um, which is a whole other topic, but he's the most lovely dog and the most lovely pet dog. And, you know, he, he there'll never be any more of him. And so, <laughs> so I, I, that, that's a sort of another area where, where I struggle sometimes is like how much of a genetic influence do you think there is on resiliency as well? Or is it mostly like, like the environment and learned history? And of course it's going to be both, but like, is that something you guys are looking at too and using some of the newer science with like genetics? Yeah, so that's something that we are really seeing that it's absolutely both. And it's very difficult to try and pinpoint how much is genetics and how much is behavior. But what we're seeing is that, again, have to have both. So you can have a dog with really great genetics. It came from really great lines. But if you don't have the adequate socialization and experience and development, you may have one in a hundred dogs that turn out just fine. And those are probably really great genetics, but more than likely, if you don't also have the right combination with the environment, it's not going to turn out, you know, how we're wanting it to. And, and vice versa, you, you can have a dog that doesn't necessarily come from these great genetics and do lots of, you know, great training and socialization. And you could probably end up with an okay dog, but having the right combination of both is going to give you kind of the best bet. So yeah, we're still, um, there's a lot of research happening right now. I think you know we're not too far away from being able to determine how much of a specific trait is due to genetics and how much is due to experience. But that's one of those things that is really difficult to to identify. And that's kind of the the, the holy grail in working dog industry is to be able to take an eight week old puppy and say, yeah, this puppy is going to make it, or this puppy is not. And then at that point you know, adopt it out from the program or keep it in training. And it's very, very difficult to determine from an early age how that puppy is going to be later on because there's so much interaction with genetics and environment that a lot of changes can happen. So we are making a lot of advances to be able to do that. I think certain traits that are more heavily genetically based, like fear specifically, does have a pretty large genetic um, component. Obviously, environment can have a huge impact as well. Um, So I think certain traits we'll be able to identify better and earlier. Um, but there's some things that it's just going to be, it, it's going to depend on the combination of genetics and environment as to how it turns out. Yeah. It's such a fascinating area that we're just barely starting to scratch the surface of. Like that's one of the things that I'm really curious to see in the next 10 or 20 years <laughs> is sort of how we start teasing that apart. So I find your interest in cognition and memory with detection dogs really fascinating. So 
A lot of times when we hear about detection dogs, we hear a lot about drive or motivation. So sort of like that emotional desire to do that work, which which is really important. But it's speaking more to the emotional rather than the cognitive or problem solving ability. So in terms of cognition and memory, what are the types of problem solving and object manipulation from the dog are you looking for? Are for example, are dogs who score higher on cognitive or intelligence tests more likely to be strong detection dogs? And are there specific like olfactory cognition abilities that a dog needs to possess to be successful? So it's funny that you bring up drive because actually that was one of my original goals in my dissertation research was to try and use cognitive testing to better quantify drive. So drive is one of those terms that gets thrown around a lot in the working dog industry, but Nobody really knows what it means. Nobody really agrees on what it means or how to define it, how to measure it. Um, And it's something that refers to something kind of inside the animal instead of observable behavior. So that was one of my goals was to see if using kind of more objective, quantifiable measures of cognition and problem solving, if we can then better define what drive means. And one thing that we are finding is that using different cognitive problem solving tests, we're seeing that. Um, things like persistence might be a better way to operationalize drive. So how hard an animal is willing to work for a reward, how much effort they're willing to put in, um, resistance to extinction, so different kind of behavioral measures that reflect what one might call a drive. Now we're finding that the persistence is very important. However, too much persistence or what's known as perseveration might reflect learning disabilities or an inability to flexibly respond to changes in the environment. So Mm. while persistence is really important, the dog also needs to be flexible and able to shift strategies when a particular strategy isn't working. So if they persist and persist and persist at trying to reach a goal or solve a problem, but what they're doing isn't working, the better dog is the dog that says, okay, this isn't working. Let me try something different. And sometimes we see that dogs that are traditionally considered very high drive dogs are more perseverative and they're not able to kind of stop and, and reassess and change strategies. Something else that is really important that plays a role is arousal. So how arousal affects performance, again, is kind of a bell-shaped curve. And this is known as the Yerkes-Dotson law. It's been shown in humans and other animals where a little bit of arousal, just like stress, a little bit of arousal is a good thing because it gives us motivation. It kind of boosts our performance up to a certain point, but then too much arousal is going to interfere with the ability to think clearly and to problem solve. And there's been some research with dogs showing that same thing. If dogs, a little bit of a boost in arousal can actually help them to perform better, but then too much interferes with performance. And it specifically depends on the dog's baseline arousal. So there was a study by Emily Bray and guide dogs who are bred and trained for really calm temperament. So they're very low arousal dogs in that population, increasing arousal by getting them excited and and amped up actually helped them solve the problem better and faster compared to a population of pet dogs that had a higher baseline arousal. They were more excitable. They moved around more for those dogs, increasing arousal actually hurt their performance, whereas kind of calming them down was better. So it's really important interaction between arousal and cognitive performance that we need to pay attention to. We also look at social cognition. So um, how the dog cooperates or communicates with the handler. And we don't want dogs that are 
reliant on the handler or like we talked about earlier, they're susceptible to unintentional or intentional cueing. Um, they're independent, but we also want dogs that can communicate and cooperate when needed. That's going to be your dogs that are, are more trainable. So um, it's not always the dogs that score higher on cognitive tests that are the best detection dogs. This is again where kind of separation and arousal come into play. Some dogs are going to get, especially the dogs that are very strongly motivated by the rewards. I hate to keep using the word drive, but dogs that might be called high drive dogs, they get so excited and so frustrated that that interferes with their ability to reason and to kind of flexibly adapt to the situation. And so those are going to be, they'll still be really strong working dogs, but the dogs that are more flexible and adaptive are going to be probably easier to train and more manageable. In terms of kind of olfactory cognitive abilities, we've done a lot of research looking at olfactory memory. So um, how many odors a dog can remember and how long they can remember. Yeah, we're hopefully we'll be publishing some of those studies pretty soon. Um, And what we're finding is that olfactory memory, and this has actually been found in humans and other mammals too, odor memory is actually really robust. So we can remember odors for a really long time. People often report that, you know, certain scents remind them of their preschool or their grandmother's house. So, um, Mm -hmm. and that has a lot to do with kind of how the brain is structured and and how odors are processed in the brain. They're really closely tied to the parts of the brain that process emotions or um, or memories. So memory for odors itself um, are actually very robust and very resilient. And we found that dogs can be trained on odors and not say those odors for a very long time and then still remember them. But what sort of decays over time is their actual the trained alert response or their search behavior that needs the maintenance. So it's not so much that they can't remember the odor per se. It's just that they have, they're kind of rusty on performing the search and getting their alert response. Something else that's really important in terms of cognitive processing of odors is discrimination versus generalization. So detection dogs especially need to be able to respond to odors that are not exactly the same as the odors that they saw in training, because it's very likely that the dog was trained on a very pure laboratory grade version of, for example, a drug or an explosive. And then out in the world, they're going to encounter kind of a street version of it that's mixed with something else, it's cut with something, it's from a different source, so it smells a little bit different. And so dogs need to be able to to generalize from the odors that they were trained with to these variations. But at the same time, we don't want the dogs to emit false alerts to other things in the environment that might be a little bit similar, but are not actually harmful substances. And so it's kind of this balance between being very specific and selective, but also responding to things that might vary somewhat. So it has a lot to do with how the dogs perceive um, configurations of odors, for example. So um, if the dog is trained on a particular odor and then they encounter that odor mixed with something else, do they process that as now a new combination, in which case they wouldn't respond to it, or can they pick out the individual components of it? And we're seeing that there's individual differences in whether dogs sort of see that as a new odor or smell that as a new odor or not. And sort of how I think of it kind of as the risk takers. So the dogs that are going to be willing to respond to something that's a little bit different versus the dogs that are very conservative and they're only going to respond to things that are exactly how they were trained. So we're seeing that there are some kind of 
individual behavioral characteristics in the differences between dogs in that sense, but it's also influenced by training. So we can set up training in ways to kind of facilitate um, generalization versus discrimination. Yeah, that's, you know, and I was watching my rat terriers today out here and uh, I'm, I'm out in the, the woods right now. And they were, they love to go looking for the the country mice that are under the, the shed and it's just when you're talking about how many, you know, the different scents and the concentrations and the, the subtle differences. And when I watch my dogs do that, like I, I mentioned this in another episode, like I like to just be able to see how they perceive the, or like to, to be able to perceive the world like them for just two minutes would just be, I think, mind blowing. Like, like, I don't even know if we can even compare, like I sometimes I almost feel like calling it smell is like, does it such a disservice because I feel like it's like it's on another planet in terms of, uh, of how they're doing this. Like, like it's almost like they can like, uh, I'm getting way, uh, the, the, you know, I'm, I'm getting like pseudoscientific now, but I feel like sometimes it's like, they're almost like focusing their nose on different things or they're like focusing on certain parts of this. Like, it's almost like that when you actually watch them do it and watch it up close and seeing like their little nose moving, like it's, it's just sort of mind blowing. And it, I never get tired of watching it. Um, I'm assuming you don't either. <laughs> yeah, I have I have a hound dog at home and I've oh. you know, I've really tried to make an effort. You know, it can be very frustrating sometimes if I want to actually get exercise or go for a jog. It's not gonna happen with him. So I've been trying to better appreciate where he's coming from and you know, go on I think it was Alexander Horowitz that termed it sniffaris, where I'm allowing him <laughs> to sniff as long as he wants to, sniff whatever he wants to and make sure that, you know, he's getting that enrichment because it's probably so many things that he's experiencing that I just have no idea. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Like, he, he, even when we got out here, like, he kept pawing at, or one of my rat terriers, Joey, he kept pawing at under the barbecue. And I'm like, I thought it was food or something. But then we found out under the deck, there was a nest of robins oh. <laughs> under the deck. <laughs> so there was like a little nest that he actually found. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like, um, yeah, yeah, it's great. Bird, bird detection dog. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Yeah. 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 They love any critters. <laughs> so, like, in, um, so if you, so sort of like a, I don't know if an ideal world is the right way to use it, but just sort of like, if we look into the future, the next 10 or 20 years, like what types of things are you hoping that research is going to help us tease out? Because I feel like we're kind of at a, there has been some research and, and there's some really rich, uh, you know, research history, but I think in the, in the grand scheme of things, we're, we're, we're just starting to, to really you know, get, get into this. So like what, like what areas of future research are you most excited about? And yeah, what, what gets you excited about doing this? And what, like, why are you in this field? Like what, like what is it about this, this future research that makes you excited that you want to spend your, your life doing this? Yeah. So I think what's really exciting is that there's a lot of kind of stimulated interest in the science of detection dogs right now. And there's a lot of collaboration happening, which is really what it's going to take to improve rating and selection. And so we're seeing a lot of collaboration between behaviorists, geneticists, neuroscientists, trainers, all kind of coming together to tackle the different aspects of what it takes to breed and to develop a successful detection dog. And we talked a little bit earlier about the whole genetics aspect. And I think that's an area that's really taking off is to be able to identify what are the genetic markers of certain behavioral traits and how to identify them and how to better breed them um, so I think in the near future, thanks to a lot of research that's going on, we'll have a better way of understanding things like um, what behavior patterns are reflecting certain brain activity or, like I said, genetic markers of specific traits. 
to be able to improve selection and breeding um, through things like behavioral genetics. Something else that I think is happening that's really exciting is that there's a lot of bridging gaps between scientists and trainers where, and this is actually what got me kind of interested in the field was seeing sort of this. And like I said earlier, I think this applies to dog training in general, not just detection dogs, but um, historically there's been kind of a lack of science in training. And um, I sort of saw this divide between detection dog training and the scientific community. And that's really um, not just in our program, but, you know, lots of different programs. There's kind of a lot of collaboration now where the scientists can bring objectivity and validity to dog training methods. But at the same time, scientists need to collaborate with the trainers too, to make sure that we are addressing relevant real world questions and that we're designing our experiments in ways that we're actually going to um, to measure what we think we're measuring. So it's really important to have that collaboration between both the scientists and the, the kind of practitioner side of it. Yeah. And that collaboration is important too, because, you know, it's sometimes even the, the vocabulary that we're using. And so I'm from the dog training world, but have a, like a master's degree in research. So I'm not, I'm not an expert researcher, but I can speak the language, but it's even things like, you know, the scientific definition of the word dominance, for example, very easily discussed in scientific circles. And then, you know, I'll go to a, a training conference and it's like, you have to be careful because you'll get tomatoes thrown at you because it has two very different meanings in one world. It means you're doing sort of really cruel stuff to your dog. And then the other one is talking about priority access to resource, or it could be talking about social hierarchies and those types of things. So just because like there's a concept that is very scientifically valid, but on the, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't mean it's a justification to do stuff, you know, uh, that, 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 that been done in the past in, in, in the training world. So sometimes I feel like there's even just like a vocabulary gap where yeah. we are talking about the same things, but, but I think, I think that's starting to close. I think it's starting to get better, but, um, yeah, it's definitely an area that needs to improve. So when I spoke to people about you coming on the podcast and people were excited, they wanted to know, do you think dogs can detect COVID-19. And so I don't know how much of this is your in your wheelhouse, but I thought I'd throw it at you anyways. Sure. So yeah, it's not super in my wheelhouse, but um, and I was not involved in this study, but our program at Auburn um, did publish a study, I think five years ago now, demonstrating that dogs are capable of learning to detect a virus and to discriminate it from other viruses. And so, um, and there's also lots of evidence that dogs can detect diseases. You know, there's medical alert dogs um, or dogs that have been able to detect things like malaria um, or other kinds of biological targets. So yeah, I do think that dogs have the capability. There's still a lot of questions about whether COVID specifically has a detectable odor, how to train the dogs to, you know, what's the best way to train them to detect that odor and to not discriminate it from other similar viruses. So there are other kinds of coronaviruses that are very common. So we want the dogs again to be specific and discriminate and not generalize to things that, you know, are, are not mm. a problem. How to train the dogs to keep the dogs and the trainers safe. So there's still a lot of unknowns, but yeah, I think the capability in the dog is there. Yeah, cool. Yeah. And I think I saw another one come out today that, or yesterday that was sort of suggesting that as well. But your point about, yeah, there's, you know, like the SARS virus and this is, this is a, what is it, COVID-2 and then there's like, yeah, like the the traditional cold, you know, coronavirus. So yeah, it'll be sort of interesting to see how that works. But man, that 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 would be nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. And then so for any young future scientists, and I will say I, one of the 
one of the things we're looking to do here on Dog Lab is get more of, um, I forget, early career researchers is I think what you guys call them in the research world. So you're yeah. not an early, so you're you're not really an early career researcher at this point because you have your PhD and you've been doing research for quite some time. But just for some of those uh, early career researchers or people thinking about becoming one, what what's the best way to get into this field? Because I think it probably feel pretty daunting for people. Um, mm-hmm. on how to get into this. So how did you get into this and what would you recommend for people? So how did I get into this? Um, so I always knew that I wanted to work with animals um, and I wasn't really sure how to go about making that happen. Um, it's definitely a field that when I was in college, which wasn't that long ago, there really weren't a lot of opportunities and now there's a, a bunch. Um, but so when I was an undergrad, I, um, I majored in psychology because I sort of discovered this field of animal behavior, which I didn't really know much about at that point. And I knew that I was not interested in the veterinary aspect. I, I tried the pre-vet route and realized that that's not where my interest was. So majored in psychology, ended up doing a master's studying olfactory learning in rats. Um, and that's kind of how I got into the dog world because of the olfactory connection. I ended up um, being hired as a research assistant to work on a grant um, at a vet school that was looking at detection dog olfactory learning. And that's where I decided to go into a PhD program. I specifically was interested in Auburn because both the psychology program had kind of an animal learning lab. And then we also had the detection dog program. So I kind of just pursued that route. Um, but there's no, I, I always tell students that ask me this, there's no clear cut path. Um, but at the same time, that means that you can kind of you know, build your own um, choose your own adventure kind of thing. So I would say that a background in psychology, biology, zoology would be a good start. Now there's even specialized programs in animal behavior. So if I could go back to school, I would definitely go to a program like that where you could concentrate specifically on, on those interests. If you're especially interested in training, then something like applied animal behavior would be a really good route. If you're interested particularly in detection dogs, you could get involved with your own dog doing nose work. That's kind of an up and coming sport that anyone can do. You can volunteer at programs um, like Auburn. There's other programs like the Penn Vet Working Dog Center where you can get a lot of hands-on experience actually training detection dogs. Um, So again, there's no clear-cut path, but I think that's sort of a good thing because you can sort of pick and choose depending on your specific interests. Yeah, that's a great answer. And I think it's becoming a theme here that you don't have to be a veterinarian, right? Like I think at one point... That's sort of what people felt like. And there, there's just a whole other, you know, set, set of areas. And even anthrozoology is like another mm-hmm. another place that that, that people are doing or, or certain universities are doing. So, yeah, thank you for that. I, that that's really helpful because I it, it's an exciting field and we definitely want to see young, bright minds getting into it. So um, we want to encourage that. And then if we have any listeners where if you're feeling stuck, just send us an email because um, we can always help hopefully give you some guidance or connect you with people who might be able to help. Yeah, and I actually have, um, I can give you the link that you can post with this, but I have on my website, I have kind of a resources for students just because I tended to get always the same questions from students. So I sort of compiled a list of different programs and kind of different routes that you can take and if you're interested in this area. So Awesome. Yeah, that would be wonderful. And then uh, before I ask my last question, uh, where's the best place for people to follow you? Is it Twitter? Is there anything else you'd like to plug or, or do you need like... Um, you know, what, yeah. How can people follow you and uh, wh- wh- where's the best place to do that? Yeah. So I am on Twitter. Um, my handle is Lou underscore loss of L U underscore L A. Um, and I 
try to keep it pretty up to date, tweeting about my recent research, but also research that others are doing in this area. So that's probably the best place to follow me. Cool. Yeah, you're a very good follow. So <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> uh, I highly recommend it. Uh, great. And then so my my last question here is something we ask all guests. So it's, uh, and it doesn't have to be scent related. It's based on all of your experience and research, if you could give people one piece of advice for, for their relationship with their pet dogs, what, what would it be? So I would say to educate yourself about dogs and dog behavior using legitimate evidence-based sources. So like I said a couple of times already, um, unfortunately in the field of dog training, there's been sort of a history of a lot of non-scientific advice and information about dog training there's so much great research that's come out in the last several years and continues to come out. So we're kind of doing a disservice to our dogs by not making an effort to learn what we can about the science of why our dogs behave the way that they do um, and really understand what underlies their behavior. And the better that we can understand their behavior, the better that we can train them, the better our relationship with them will be and the better their welfare is going to be. So thankfully, there's tons of great accessible resources like this podcast and tons of other places. There's lots of great books um, that really bring that scientific information to a general audience. So looking at my bookshelf right now, books by Brian Hare, Clive Wynn, Alexandra Horowitz. There's a new book by Zazie Todd on the science of making your dog happy. So there's um, just tons of great information out there that if people really just made a little bit of an effort to understand, uh, I think it would really improve dogs' lives. Yeah, 100%. And I think that's uh, that also points to people understanding dog body language, I think, is another big part of that, because we it's, this stuff isn't intuitive all the time, even though we might think it is. <laughs> so that's a great point. Yeah. To get, stay on top of of those good. And I'll actually put um, I'll put links to all those books because um, I, I know which books you're referring to. Um, I, I know some of those authors have written multiple books, but I'll put yeah. the, the big ones out there in the episode notes. So that's great. Well, Thank you so much for for joining us. And then hopefully we can have you back again someday uh, when 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 new research comes out. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Thank you for having me. 